Happy Sabbath, everyone. I'm reading uh, Mark 5, uh, 18 to 20. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. It's the power of our personal stories. They're personal in the sense that they're ours, but they're universal in the sense that they belong to all who have had a true encounter with Christ. Even the very story of this service is one of testimony. Peter Smith is the kind of person who could be hung by his thumbs, suspended in sewage, and he would praise God. That's a testimony. I've known Peter nearly 12 years. Melinda Rice, the only thing harder than playing violin is teaching it. And that's a testimony. An Adventist from the Hollywood church, she uses our church as a space to teach these children how to play. And we share in the glory of music today. Trevor, when I arrived four years ago, I don't want to be mean, but you struggled with a few of those notes there, bud. You were you kind of all over the place some days, and now he's he's given it to us crystal clear. There's growth. There's a story of development and change, and God is a part of these stories. Betty Dettilio, 46 years ago, became a Seventh-day Adventist Christian at the age of 40 years old. Still nervous about getting up to read to you. You're such an intimidating group. But God has been a part of her story and her life and her experience and her faith. Yes, even I have one of these stories. I want to tell you just a couple of disparate pieces and hopefully it'll all come together. Had a wonderful experience last weekend, an experience that I didn't anticipate. And I rarely say with confidence God is leading uh, in certain things, specific things, because sometimes that appears to be a function of preference on my part or an appearance that something might have finally gone the way I wanted it to, and therefore I'm declaring it's God's way. Any of you guilty of that? I'm glad to hear it. Bless you and peace to you. So I'm sometimes hesitant to declare things, but it, it, at least I find joy in what I've, I've seen in a few things lately. We started off in this conference in May of this last year with uh, the beginning of preparation for evangelism, which had been announced. The conference had received several really huge gifts in tithe totaling somewhere in the neighborhood of three or four million dollars. 
And part of that, they were going to be able to hold on to. You know, a portion goes on to the union and the division and the general conference and all the ministries like Adventist World Radio that I've talked about or like uh, uh, Hope for Humanity, which we featured a video on uh, last week. And those budgets are funded that way, but some of that money, a good portion of that money, about 68% stays right here in the conference. And they wanted to do some public evangelism events with this money. So they contracted, got it all set up, and told us what we were going to do. And since May, we've been in a preparation mode. Only there have been all kinds of roadblocks and barriers. Well, one of the training things, there are two things I want to say. One along the line of um, how I think God is leading and how at least I'm happy with the direction things are going. This last week and a half, because of the economic crisis, things fell apart for one of the major public events. And it, it was canceled. It wasn't going to happen. But we still had the venue, and we still had all this preparation and people who have been doing Bible studies and such leading up to this. And so now it's going to be a little bit shorter. It's going to be conducted by Mike Tucker, uh, who is... Uh, a wonderful speaker presenter, I think. And this is uh, Faith for Today speaker out of Dallas, out of the Texas area. And we're going to have a chance to do more relational types of pieces leading into this series. So it seems that God is leading, and it's really exciting to see the ministers coming alive as we talk about this joint effort, which, believe it or not, you in Santa Clarita, we here in Santa Clarita are part of. Uh, even though the event takes place in Pasadena. Well, concurrently, they ask us to take some trainings. And one of the trainings was called Reframe. I've mentioned it in announcements a couple times last week, but wasn't really clear on what this was all about. So Friday night I went, Saturday after church I went until the late into the evening, and Sunday all, most of the day I was at this training event. Different bits of information shared, most of which I'd heard at one point or another, but it was on reaching postmoderns with the Christian message primarily. And the reframe was, how do we take the structures that we have doctrinally and how do we make them presentable to a non-modern mind? Now, that's a mouthful, and I could take the next 20 minutes to unravel that for you. But essentially, modernists are very logical. Modernists are very um, constructional in their thinking. That is to say, they use constructs, they, they like order and design. Postmoderns are deconstructionalists. They like to tear ideas and things apart. They're spiritual as opposed to religious, or um, they're kind of independent as opposed to denominational. They want meaning in their lives. They want some of these things in their lives. And believe it or not, many of you are postmodern in your thinking and your way of being. And frankly, probably you don't say much to me, but the church service doesn't always meet your needs because it's pretty much structured in a modernistic way. But we took this reframe event, and what a joy to be reminded of so many things I've learned over the last 10 years and thought over the last 10 years. And one of the pieces that I walked away with that I want to really uh, just bring home today in the little time that we have is the way in which Christ chose to meet people. Because if you're like me, evangelism is kind of an annoying term. 
I mean, some of you are not like me, so your hackles may be going up just a little bit and you're thinking, what do you mean an annoying term? That's what we're supposed to do. Evangelize. What do you mean annoying? I love it when we do a big effort. Just a quick background on your sort of postmodern pastor. I went through all of this. I had Stanley Harris. I think you had him here too, at least as an evangelist, because I found his slides in the pastor's office when I first moved here. But Stanley Harris was our pastor in Sonora for a number of years. So every sermon was one of his evangelistic presentations. (laughs) I remember going home after church with images of beasts and so forth plastered in my mind. I can remember uh, sermons that had a strong, strong apocalyptic content, sermons that had strong spirit of prophecy content, very forceful, make a decision. Every sermon was an altar call. Any of you missed the altar call days? If you miss it, I'll do it. I'll get you, we'll, we'll bring you up here one of these days. I don't mind. So that was my early childhood. And then through my early training in ministry, I would watch the church put on efforts. They would rent the Soroyan Theater. We would spend $65,000 and baptize 13 people. Well, you do the math. It's a lot of money to spend to baptize a few people. And the really tragic piece of that was after baptizing 13 people in 12 months, only four of them would still be at church. There wasn't tools. There weren't ways. We weren't taught how to be relational, how to reach in and form connections, how to nurture, how to walk beside and walk with people who were just discovering Christ or just discovering truths of Adventism. And so it wasn't that I hated evangelism. It was that it seemed to me a tremendous amount of money and a tremendous amount of effort for a relatively low yield. And I wondered if there couldn't be a better way. And now I I see the conference as having some sense of proportion and balance. Public evangelism will still be part of the picture for the overall conference, and it should be. But they're starting to think strategically and they're starting to think about the way in which Christ actually won people over. I don't know how many of you track these things, but today is actually Spirit of Prophecy Heritage Sabbath. And I have Ministry of Healing here. How many of you have the red books at home? This one's all marked up. I was looking through this and my writing is just all through it. Um... There's a wonderful quote those of you who are familiar with the writings of Ellen White will remember. It's found on page 143 and part of 44 of the Ministry of Healing. She says this, Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. Remember our story of Paul on Malta? He mingled with the Maltese people as one who desired their good. He served them. He healed them. He helped them. 
He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. Then he bade them, follow me. There is need of coming close to people by personal effort. If less time were given to sermonizing, ouch, and more time were spent in personal ministry, greater results would be seen. The poor are to be relieved, the sick cared for, the sorrowing and the bereaved comforted, the ignorant instructed, and the inexperienced counseled. We are to weep with those that weep and rejoice with those that rejoice. Accompanied by the power of persuasion, the power of prayer, the power of the love of God, this work will not, cannot, be without fruit. A great quote. Christ's way of reaching people. He had a very personal connection. He saw to the heart of their struggles and their concerns and their needs. He listened to their stories. And he told stories. You tell me, how did Christ communicate? Parables. And what are parables? Stories. Are all of them factual? No. Are all of them true? Absolutely. Do you see the difference? A parable may be a story about something that didn't really take place. That's what I mean by it's not factual. But is it true? Yes, because it illustrates an eternal truth. Are we clear on that? Christ always told the truth, didn't he? We get some kind of this reductionistic, narrow logic which says, well, if a parable wasn't factually true, then Christ wasn't telling the factual truth, therefore Christ was lying, therefore the parables have to be true because Christ couldn't have been a liar. Sorry, that's reductionistic thinking. That's not the way Christ taught. He used the power of the story because the power of the story is in what it holds, not the accuracy of the minutia of the events. And what it holds is an idea, a message, a purpose, a power, a meaning. What is your personal story? You have tens of thousands of them. The story of how you came to be. The story of your parents. Myriads of stories, actually. And their journey in life. And discoveries. The stories of your ancestors. You carry with you the stories of your childhood and the scars and marks from that time in life. You carry with you the stories of teachers and mentors and friends. You embody these very stories and they shape who you've decided that you are and who you will be. The power of this story is unbelievable. And sometimes, well, sometimes we need to readjust our stories. Sometimes our stories play in our minds over and over and over again in certain ways that continue to lock us in and hold us down and limit us 
They tell a certain type of truth, but they don't tell us the truth about who we are, or who God calls us to be. They don't tell us the real truth about our value or our purpose. Some of you can think of these awful stories, stories of neglect or stories of abuse, stories of social problems, not fitting in. Some of you can pull up stories that go to physical pain and injury. You have stories that your mind plays over and over and over again, reliving pain. And God can help us reframe those stories. He can help us put them into a context that helps us understand the salvation that he brings, the relief, the hope, and the healing. But we're made up of stories. And did you know that your own stories aren't entirely factually true? You're not sure about that. Hey, wait a minute. I was there. What do you mean they're not factually true? Over time, it's documented that the way in which we tell a story will often change and the substance of it will sometimes change with it. Another truth is that while we are participants in our own story, we don't see our place in the story objectively. We only experience it subjectively. And those around us may have a completely different story to tell about us in the event that we describe. So we even don't even understand our own stories completely objectively. But there's so much power there. Turn to our text for today. Mark chapter 5, 18 to 20. The story doesn't begin with what was read. The story begins much earlier. This is the second major section of Mark. For those of you who didn't hear the series I did a couple of years ago on Mark, Mark has six major sections, and they chronicle the way in which the disciples' thinking shifts and changes. It shifts and changes from recognizing Jesus as prophet to finally recognizing Jesus as son of God. Number two, Jesus emerges from the role of being simply prophet or teacher, rather, teacher, sorry, to the role of being prophet and great prophet. In verse 35 of chapter four, he calms the storm in the sea. The, t the disciples, it's recorded, are terrified, verse 41, and say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? They manage not to sink. They get across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. And there is a man there, possessed of devils, chained down by the tombs, naked and bloody, constantly cutting and scraping himself, possessed of demons. Jesus was seen by him from a distance. 
And he ran and fell on his knees in front of Jesus, having broken his chains. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission. And the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down to the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs were not so thrilled with Jesus. The unclean thing taken out of the man was put into something unclean, and the two destructed. You have this dramatic story of Jesus' encounter with somebody who was stuck, irretrievably lost, suffering, possessed, disenfranchised from his family and his society. What brought him to this point, I cannot say. But Jesus commanded the spirits to leave him. And so powerful was their presence that they didn't just go. They argued. They didn't just go. They negotiated. They didn't just go. They wanted freedom and permission to go somewhere specific. My name is Legion, the demon said, for we are many. The pigs drown. The poor man is freed. And like all of us who become self-conscious again, like all of us for whom the birth of consciousness becomes real, he sees himself as he is. Filthy. Disgusting. Naked. Bruised and cut and bloody. Chains broken with the shackles around his wrists. Hair matted. The odor must have been atrocious. And he stands before Jesus. Well, the difference is now he's free. The reality isn't pretty, but now he's free. And this man who had become unrecognizable goes back to civilization and he cleans up. And he hears the teachings of Jesus and Gennesaret. And he wants to follow him. Oh, Jesus, let me come with you. Let me be your disciple. Jesus says, no, not now. What I want you to do is go. Return to your family and tell them what the Lord has done for you. Tell them. Be my witness. Tell your story. And when you tell this story, it's going to be powerful. That's what he does. He goes to his home and he tells his story. This is what the Lord did for me. 
The whole village was converted. Except, I think, the pig keepers. They were still kind of mad. But everybody else came along. The Spirit was given room and space to make changes in people's lives. Faith and hope were born anew because of the power of a story. Now, this is my challenge to you this morning. It's my challenge to me this morning. It's my challenge to all of us. Out of the millions, well, at least thousands of identifiable stories of your life, which of these stories tell the story of Jesus? And whom can you share that story with? And for those of you who are struggling to find that, there's another challenge. Live your life in relationship to God in such a way that if you feel like you don't have a story to tell yet, that he will give you one. That the change in your life will be evident. That the truth of your story will be self-evident. And that when you say, this is what the Lord has done for me, it'll be relational, it'll be personal, It'll be hopeful. It'll be a point not of preaching, but a point of sharing. Not a gospel of words, but truth indeed. It'll be your opportunity to speak as you have listened. To be rejoiced with as you have rejoiced with others. To be Consoled or comforted as you have mourned with others. And to be in relationship with people that will bind them to the living God that you know, that you love, and that you serve.